Deadline's Crew Call is brought to you by HBO presenting The White Lotus. Nominated for 23 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. Don't miss the series critics call a resounding triumph. The White Lotus is now streaming on Max. We're here today on Crew Call with the author, executive producer, and creator of FX's Fleischman is in Trouble, Taffy Burdessa-Rackner. It's up for seven primetime Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Limited or Anthology Series, as well as Best Writing Limited or Anthology Series. Here she is. Welcome, Taffy. Anthony, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So for those who don't know, where did the genesis of the novel, Fleischman is in Trouble, come from? I mean, how long was this idea with you? Minutes. It was with me for minutes before I sat down to write it. Actually, what happened was a bunch of my friends started telling me after I got for, I, after I turned 40, a bunch of my friends started telling me that they were getting divorced. And I was just mystified by this. And I was also mystified by the exact age I am, which is that anyone that was getting divorced now was already, by the time they told me they were already dating and they were on these apps. And I started thinking, what must it have been, what would it be like for those of us? We were like the last generation of people who didn't have apps. What would, if we married young, what would it be like for us to suddenly have this new technology. And I pitched that as an idea to my GQ editor um, because, of course, as you know, I am a fellow journalist. And he said to me, he said, you know, you don't always seem like an out-of-touch suburban housewife, but right now you do because the, our readers wouldn't even understand what you're saying. They've only ever dated with apps. And there's a version of this where I then go to the New York Times where I had another, I had a contract at GQ and I had a contract at the New York Times Magazine. But before I did that, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to instead start writing this. And it just overtook me as a novel. And by the end of the day, like within a couple of hours, I had a bunch of pages that I really liked and thought, you know what? This is not really different than what I do. I write these profiles. This is just a profile of someone who doesn't exist and it's longer. But the way I write profiles is 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 a little bit like, you know, beginning, middle, end, long story, a little bit like a like a like a gothic for any celebrity. So I'm just going to do this. And I and I did it. And I finished it within six months. Wow. Now, I mean, you've got this great hook, which is the divorced wife goes missing. What a great yep. mystery. And we'll talk about that resolution toward the end. But was that hook evident up front? No, it was. It, it looks so intentional now. It looks like it is the point of the book. But actually, what I realized in writing those the first two pages was, oh my God, I could go on forever. And as a as a good journalist knows, you have to have a word count in mind. You have to have, you have to, you could write something one of two ways. You could write starting from the beginning and know that you're on a journey to figure out what it is. 
But most of the time, the best thing to do is to know exactly where you're going. And I thought, I need something to happen here so that I just do not, I don't give 350 pages about my feelings about marriage, divorce, middle, midlife. So what could I do to make sure that he, um, that he has what to do is what I did was I made, was I gave him a mystery, you know, I'm like wild about a sort of mystery that is not necessarily the point of the book, but, uh, but, but sort of rides alongside the book and gets resolved and everything, but is not necessarily the point of it. It's just the engine of it. And I was very lucky that that occurred to me. One of my friends had told me a story about a time that his ex-wife just like dropped the kids off and then didn't come back for two days. Like she was in touch. She was just like, Nope, I'm on, I'm staying on this business trip. And I, I thought that was like, well, what if she didn't, wasn't in touch? What if she was so dismissive of him? Because, you know, in literature, you're trying to get toward reality, but you have to entertain people and therefore heighten things a little bit. What if she just wasn't in touch? This is the Annie Hall for our generation. I mean that. Wow, um, what a nice thing to say. And not just for men, because that film was, I felt when I saw Annie Hall was very much from the guy POV but also for women. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that because you really get into these under, underpinnings. People don't have affairs because they're betraying their spouse. Rather, they're trying to rejuvenate who they were in the first place. There's all these pieces of wisdom. Was it just all organic? Were you researching relationships on the side? Is it just a culmination of experience? You know, my husband will tell you that, uh, my husband whom you know, yes, will, will tell you that uh, as he told a room full of people um, during my book tour, someone raised her hand and said, is your husband upset that you wrote a divorce novel? And I said, well, he's in the room. You can ask him. And his answer was the best answer. I didn't, I don't think I could have been this, um, this succinct about it. He said, um, he said, oh, she's obsessed with divorce. And I thought that was so interesting for my poor husband to have to say to a crowd, I'm not obsessed with my own divorce. I'm obsessed with the amount of divorce in my family. I'm obsessed with the fact that everyone I know who was divorced was as happy as I was on their wedding day. And I think because unlike every other problem you talk about, um, what happens in relationships is nobody really talks about it because you are de facto betraying your spouse if you talk about your marital problems. And I've been lucky. I think people like to talk to writers. I think people like to tell when they hear you're a writer, they like to tell um, you their stories. When I was doing this story, I was also, I was also on a million magazine stories. Um, and some of them weren't profiles. I remember I was on this, um, spa thing for outside magazine. And I remember someone doing some treatment on me and I said, I'm a magazine writer, but I'm also, I'm also writing a novel about divorce. And then people just start telling you all of their divorce, um, all of their divorce stories. Like people really like to tell you what has happened to them in, 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 in your life. And I think that 
more than anything, I, I'm a journalist. I'm still a journalist. I am still on staff at the New York Times Magazine, and I am still someone who is interested in telling other people's stories. And I think that's why this novel, which was my first kind of sidestepped the coming of age novel that is the sub is what most people write because I think I'm just used to writing other people's stories and also grafting. Like I've long since known, as you know, that there is no writing of a story that isn't written by the unique organism that is you. I am sometimes more explicit about the me in my magazine stories and that just extended to this. But I, I take your compliment. I don't, I, you know, it's funny. I never thought of Annie Hall as for men, but I also say that like I was forced into a world where entertainment that seemed to be built for men was the most serious entertainment for the most part. Um, and as a result, had to blur my eyes and imagine myself not as a man, but as man, as like the general person that this might have been meant for and try to imagine. And I ended up working at a men's magazine, I think probably as a result of that. The show also does justice to the women and we can't forget that. You know, I mean, I think that's the thing I do differently than Annie Hall. You yeah. Know, Annie Hall's a very different animal, but like- Rachel and Libby have their own episodes. Well, they take over the show in the, like in the end, Rachel shows this sort of, dark, sharp pivot point in, in an episode so expertly directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who really understood first how to make, in the first episode, Toby lovable and sympathetic, and then to do the same thing for this character we had seen throughout being markedly unsympathetic. And then the directors, Bob Polcini and Sherry Springer Berman, who take over Libby's version of the story in in episode six and then the final episode I mean those were people who were being very very good custodians of what the mission was and while I'm just saying names I'm going to say that Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant who 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 made this made every script of mine and of Mike Goldbach who who wrote the third episode made them great in a way that I, I couldn't have done but also kept drilling down into what is the thing that we that that is the essence of the book? What is the thing that this always was as opposed to what could it be? And I'm so grateful to them for that. But that is what like there's a version of this Lizzie used to say to me that even though Lizzie knew she read the book and Lizzie Kaplan, if she talks she, who played Libby, if she talks to you about this, I don't I I think she talks about the flight Fleischman as a project in a far more articulate way than I do. She was with it for almost as long as I was and she was doing these voiceovers throughout. So she just and she had to understand how to modulate her performance and her voice throughout it. And she said to me from the beginning when we you know she wasn't she was a small part of the first few episodes and then becomes bigger and bigger and of course over takes over the whole thing at the end. And she confided in me that, you know, she said, I don't know, after, like Jesse Eisenberg and Claire Danes' performances are so great. Are you sure you even want to do this thing at the end? And I said to her, no, the point, the point of it is, is the end, is that there is no story that we ever find out that 
does not have another version. And in the end, we're all listening to it as ourselves. And she was the most crucial, she was the most crucial part of it. So I was very grateful for that. When was that decision made that it would become Libby's story in the end? Was that something that you and the writers, the, you and the producers figured out at the onset? Or? Well, it was in the book. The yeah. book is a first person book. So it was, it was a decision made when we were editing the book. In fact, the book was at first a third person book. It turned into a first person book when the point was not coming out as clearly as it could. And it was just the part of the, if you take that part out of it, it's just a book about a couple getting divorced. And as a journalist, I know I keep saying as a journalist, I'm sorry for that. But the one thing I know for sure is what the mo like the moment can talk. Like I, I, I really want to always be speaking to the moment and the moment here was not, there have been a thousand divorce novels and there, and it wasn't, there have been many, many books where there, or, or some books where at least a book is told by, from a sympathetic male point of view. And then you find out the fate of the woman. The thing that I was hoping the project of Fleischman is to take it all the way to the end and say, who is telling this story anyway? And why? And like, what is her particular disgruntlement that this is a story of all the stories in the whole world, this story attracted her. The novel comes out, it's a big sensation. How soon after is there chatter of film or TV rights selling? Um, there were, there, there were only two people interested at first and I liked them both very much. And my agents said, let's just wait a minute. And then it became a bestseller the first week. It was, it was on sale. And suddenly they were putting me with like dozens of people. I was, I was on a story for the Ma for the times magazine and couldn't speak to everybody, but I asked them like, can we, can I talk to the people who you recommend? And I was, all I was doing was looking for someone who would do a good job at this while I continued my job at the times. When Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant came along, I believe the legend goes that they were on the set of unbelievable, their magnificent limited series for uh, Netflix. And they were looking for the next thing they were going to do there. They are career long um, collaborators and they were reading Fleischman as something that they could, that, Su that Sarah could produce and Susanna could write. They read it and they came to me and they said, and I spoke to them, of course, because they're legends. I couldn't, I remember where I was when I spoke to them for the first time. I just wanted to thank them for the many hours of entertainment they had provided me. And also what Susanna Grant in particular meant to me as someone who wrote Erin Brockovich and showed me the sort of range that a woman might be allowed to write about other women in, maybe with a muscularity that I had never seen before. Um, and I spoke to them and I said, well, well, what do you want to do with it? And they said to me, oh, you would have to write it. This is written so explicitly in your voice, you would have to write it. And I would like to pretend here that I, that it took me 
some convincing, but I guess my my vanity is so great that it was three seconds before I was like, you know what, that, that's a great point. And we just started talking about whether or not it, I, I said, I, I don't want to lose my job. So we started talking about it as a movie. But then I also realized that the movie version of it, the, you have to commit to the bit of it being his story for so long. It takes hours. So you have to really lull people into a sense of this guy is having a crisis and then do the flip. There is no length of a movie, even a long movie, where doing that would have been the surprise of waiting five out, five and a half hours before you do that. Deadline's Crew Call is brought to you by HBO presenting The White Lotus. Nominated for 23 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. Don't miss the series critics call a resounding triumph. The White Lotus is now streaming on Max. As you probably figured, I was going to ask, how did you get involved in adapting your own work? Because that is quite an anomaly for an author. Like, I don't think Candace Bushnell, I think she's on speed dial in the writer's room of Sex and the City. But she, you know, as far as writing, like, scripts in this day and age, it's it, it right. doesn't always happen. And I was thinking, oh, is that good agenting on your part? I mean, I'm very lucky. I have to say, quite frankly, I have agents. I said I wanted to do this. I have agents who who either really believe I could do anything or are very good at pretending they think I could do anything, you know, um, but seem to really believe it. I watched um, a lot of my novelist friends be told they can't do it or you'll do it on the next book or you could be in the writer's room. And there's always some switch that they pull. And I think that that is part of a relic of packaging is that you have novelists, especially at big agencies, growing this IP so that your other clients could then, you know, some sort of football metaphor, taking the ball and running with it, while then the novelist goes and starts to write another book. Um, I was pretty clear. I came to my agency, which was ICM, um, and is now CAA. But I came. I went to Sloan Harris as a journalist who was writing a novel, which is hard enough. Like I had just come from an agency that was like, you should write a nonfiction book. And I said, I, you know, I, I really want to. I, I was a few. I was halfway into Fleischman. I said, I really want to do this, and they just believed in me that I could do it. And so when it came down to it, you know, I had a, suddenly I had these two great rights agents, Josie Friedman and Will Watkins, and I, I was introduced to a screenwriting agent, Harley Copen. And those people, they just think I, they just, whatever I say that I would like to do, they advocate for it. And I always say this, like, I always say this to other writers who wonder how this happened to me is that I have always been this person. I have always I have always been who I am now. The thing that changed for me was having people advocate for me who really believed I could do anything and who believed that you know their financial success is tied to mine. That is 
when when you feel that like that there's nothing more profound than that um it's more it's better than your mother or your husband believing in you cuz that's that's kind of the gig for them they have to do that these people chose you they believe in you and then sarah and susanna they just did not think there was anything i couldn't do either and i don't know how i became so blessed i was always afraid that there was going to be a secret showrunner. This is the story I hear a lot, by the way, also. In addition to a novelist who is not really allowed to go the distance on her own show, um, I hear a lot about someone having, um, someone being a showrunner or a co-showrunner and then finding out at some point in the process when there is static that actually there's someone who has more power than they do on the set. And I've heard that story so many times that I told Sarah and Susanna, just make me one deal that if there is a secret showrunner, you will let me know who it is. And that also I I just don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to think I was this and then be this. And I think that the extraordinary things that they both did, Susanna, who was on other projects as well, um, and Sarah too, but Susanna was up in the middle of the night in Morocco reading drafts while she was in prep on something. And Sarah Timberman, I don't know what happened, but no one has ever told me, but Sarah Timberman moved to New York for a year to be on the set every single day of Fleischman is in trouble. That can't be a regular thing that executive producers always do. And I think that that was a kind of insurance policy. If I were to read between lines that people don't want me reading in between. But then I also had this incredible network, like the network and the studio it was FX and ABC signature. They really, they also believed that I could do anything. And FX is so interesting because FX says often that it prides itself on being creator friendly And I don't know if I believed, you know, I have the same skepticism about corporations that everyone should. I don't know if I really believed that that was possible once there were millions and millions of dollars in play. But now what I see is that there there were times we disagreed and they let me have the final decision, which was shocking to me. Like when I sat there on the soundstage and saw that we were close to done on the show that I wanted to make, I could have, I probably did cry. I was always crying in this process um, because I could not believe that they let me do it. And now I watch as many FX shows as everyone else does. I watched The Bear. I watched The Patient. The Patient was maybe my favorite show I watched last year. And at the beginning, they have this logo that says fearless on it. And I think, you know, it's not you're not fearless because you put the shield on the air when it was like so such a new idea, the shield, right? You're not fearless because the bear technically shouldn't work. It just takes place in a kitchen. Like the eye wants to travel, it works. It's not fearless because to put in a such an overtly dark and Jewish show as the patient on the air is is so brave. Those things are true, but giving a borderline irresponsible amount of responsibility and decision-making to someone like me, that is what is in that logo. And 
when I see it, I have a, a rush of, of love for the fact that those people let us do this with their input and with their partnership. They were terrific. Well, a group of us saw John Landgraf last fall and he gave you high praise. He said, Taffy has turned into a wonderful showrunner. And, and he was just, he was re- really blown away by your talents. There is not a place I wouldn't follow that man to. I mean, I, I, the, uh, like, I cannot believe how often he had this man, this like legend of the form who is like a true inventor, a genius, an innovator, calm, purposeful, put most of my favorite television on the air. How often he had to hear me explaining how it's done or how it should be done. Like the humility that like his leadership, you know, the thing that was also happening was that for the first time in my life, I was a boss. I had gone from being a boss of zero ever people, right? I was only ever a reporter. I wasn't even an editor. Like I zero ever people to 350 people in charge of this operation. And I started desperately looking around for what good leadership looks like. And in a framed, in a gold frame photo, it's him, it's Gina Balian, it's Sarah and Suzanne. It's like everyone who, you know, I've been around so many bad bosses in my life. I have been scared so often in my life for my job and for, I have left, uh, yeah, I have left, I mean, where'd your lists? I have left rooms feeling so bad about something I handed in. And I have been convinced that there is no such thing as making it to the top of a pyramid without being a little bit terrible. And I no longer think that. I have now seen a, a way to do it. And I, I will follow those people anywhere. I will show up at their doorstep. I will, I, I love them. I, I have real love for them and so much gratitude um, because you can't really become a showrunner and you can't really become good at something unless someone says to you, why don't you try it? Here's, here's many millions of dollars. And even though we like, and I'm, I'm talking about like what a show costs to make, not obviously not my compensate compensation, but here are many millions of dollars. And here every day, the idea that this show was going to say FX on it calmed in my head the insecurity I had about everything. Like if they want this, maybe it's good. Now you selected for your Emmy submission and also it was nominated Me Time, the penultimate yes. episode where we learned the fate of, of Claire Danes's Rachel. I think that's a no-brainer choice, but tell us why you selected that. It's not a no-brainer choice. It only became a no-brainer choice after me, the show came. For me. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, no. But for everyone. No, no, no. I'm yeah. going to tell you that I loved the finale because the finale, I, I love endings. And the finale brings it all together in this magnificent way to me. The, the performances, like there's something about 
departing from the main story for two episodes. And then, and then Jesse Eisenberg shows up. He walks back into the story. He shows up at an engagement party and Libby's ordering a Negroni or something. And he shows up and when he shows up, I have this feeling of a, of a complete circle. Everyone knew what Claire was, that Claire was going, everyone knew what Claire was going to do and that she was just going to bring down the house. But can I, before I tell you about this submission, I'm going to tell you that originally we were going, we pictured it as nine episodes, not eight. And one day, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, they're, the way you do table readings while you're in production is you do them over lunch. Like you stop and that day for lunch, everyone, and we were doing it over Zoom. And we were doing it over Zoom in a place that had bad Wi-Fi and a million people coming in, the network coming in for the, for the table read. And Claire, I don't think she was in her dressing room with our same terrible Wi-Fi. She was wearing her glasses. She had just seen the script for the first time. The performance she gave in that table read, we were like walking in circles, drooling after it. We had to go back to work after it. And I went into Sarah Timberman's office and I said, what do we do? Like, I cannot sustain this show for two episodes after that performance because any, even though all the, all the performance, it was so intense that any audience will have the, we knew something, we didn't know what we were going to do in the last two, but we decided then it should just be one episode because you can't sustain a TV show after you show it's sort of crescendo. And it reminded me in, in a way of magazine articles I've written where this, it's not the last, it's not the ending of the magazine story. That's the best part. It's the part right before the ending. It's like the, the penultimate part. I loved that episode, but I loved, I loved 108 also. And I thought, I thought there was more to relate to in 108, but then I saw how people were reacting to 107. And we just talked and we're like, what, what's our best chance here? I guess that's how you do Emmys, right? Like, I've never done that before. But I think the way you do Emmys is you just say, like, what has the best shot? Claire's performance, like, I always knew that Claire would get enough. Like, there's no kingdom. I'm, I was worried when you see her in episode one that you there's there's no way you can trick an audience into thinking you are not going to see some sort of plutonium happen. I hope we can hide the ball for long enough until then. We ultimately chose 107 because as the show was coming out, people's reaction to it. But there are a few episodes I could have chosen in there. They're all deeply close to my heart. Taffy, before we go, I just want to say thank you for joining us today. I re, you know, especially at a time when writers are on strike, I reached out to you directly. You were not pitched to me by either the network or anyone on your behalf. So we know each other. Yes. Thank you very much for saying that because um, I hold very strictly to these strike rules and would hate anyone to think um, that I was out promoting. M- myself or pitching or anyone was pitching me. Um, I really appreciate you still being interested in talking about this. I know that this 
has been a really hard Emmy season for everybody, both on my side, on your side. Um, I can't imagine how the network is feeling about things. Um, though I, you know, was on the New York Times website, my workplace the other day, and I saw some Fleischman ads and I thought, this guy's really grateful. <laughs> but well, I do look forward to a, 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 a quick resolution to this strike, which has gone on long enough, but will go on for as long as it has to. You know, we've written extensively how TV writers are a big linchpin to this. And I'm just curious, what are some of the issues that are important to you? Do you believe in minimum staffing on TV rooms? Uh, Obviously, clearly, the streaming residual thing needs to be figured out. We're long overdue for that. Well, here's the thing about being in a union. Anything that my union has decided is an important issue is, is an important issue. Because I'll say this. I have been a successful journalist and I have been a successful novelist. I have, I was not, I was not solvent with a chance for a good future until I wrote for television. And that is the union. That is not anyone volunteering to shower me with anything. And, you know, we don't, we don't have such a high burn rate in this house, but As you and I have, you and I, I guess, I think we're probably similar ages as we've been in journalism. We have watched the pay not really change. We have watched, I mean, what, like the idea of residuals, the idea of being rewarded for a job well done, other than with awards, which you can't pay your rent with, um, as that, as that model has constricted and contracted and all of the local news jobs have gone away. It's very easy to see like, so the answer is there's the only answer to that is I am for whatever my union is for. And, but the idea of the payment, it would be, it seems to me from where I am sitting that all you would have to, there's, there's, all you would have to part with profits wise is such a small percentage to make this whole problem go away. Writers are just grateful to get a phone call. It's so easy to make us happy. Um, so I, I am equally passionate of all the issues and the issues that have not affected me yet or don't affect me or never will affect me. I am equally passionate for those two because that's, that's why this union works. I mean, I mean, look at it. Like, look at the people who, like, outside my door are still, are picketing every single day. Look at the passion. And also, in the theater of unintended consequences, uh, look how being on those lines took people from the alienation of a pandemic into a community again. I say I trust my union implicitly, and I hope that everyone is staying strong and holding the line. And then Long Island Compromise, your next novel. Yes. Thank you. It's coming out, we think, this summer. Um, I haven't gotten a date yet, but I've been This this summer summer. as in we have like a week and a half left? No, no, no. This isn't in publishing. We're like- we're already in the fall in publishing. Um, if a book, actually, if a book came out right now, it would be considered a fall book on August 21st. Mm-hmm. It would be gaming the fall system. 
if a book comes out around now, it was it was trying to be a fall book. Um, my book will come out in summer 2024, um, which is anywhere from like late April to July. And it is it is about um, a wealthy family um, where the father was kidnapped a long time ago. It's about generational wealth. It's about generational trauma. It's about all of these Marxist ideals of the um, of the strike. It's very, um, you know, in doing my revisions on it, the strike has been in my mind, on my mind a lot. It's about income disparity. It's about the disappearance of the middle class, but it's a good old fashioned kidnapping family drama uh, taking place um, on everybody's not short island. And there's a twist, a great yes. twist, which you're, you're becoming excellent with. And that is he wants to know who took, who he shelled out the ransom money to. I know he, he thinks he knows who it was. He doesn't know where the money is. He, uh, he is missing the money. It's a small part of his port is small part of his fortune, but it's the part that tortures him the most. Kathy Brodesser Ackner, the author, executive producer and creator of Fleischman is in trouble up. She is up for two Emmy nominations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.